my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. From the beginning of time, men and women who have, have wanted to follow Jesus and who followed Jesus have suffered at the hands of others. In our day and time, with instant news, we just hear about the suffering of our brothers and sisters all the time, and it just seems like in in real time. Fulani militants and other allied jihadists on on the other side of the world from us, right? They've slaughtered 2,500 Christians uh, in Nigeria in the last six months. The atrocities against Jesus followers in North Korea are well documented. If you begin to follow Jesus and you are discovered, you are either publicly executed along with your family or you are sent to political prison camps where you will die of malnutrition and overwork and inhumane treatments. Called Africa's North Korea by some, Eritrea, I think I'm saying it right, is ruled by an oppressive totalitarian government that openly is hostile to religion. There's an estimated four to 500 Christian prisoners in that country who have not received any trial. There's no charges. They've just been in prison and for indefinite terms with unimaginable inhumane conditions. Not too long ago, we watched Voice of the Martyrs on a, I think it was a Friday night. We had a, a simulcast, the missions team, encouraged us to come to that. But we watched it and we saw a woman from Eritrea who became a believer and she was eventually arrested by the government and she was kept in a, in a cargo container, in a cargo container for uh, I think it was months if not a year. And, and that was, you know, and she was opened the door to feed them food and the rest of the time she's in the cargo, on uh, this cargo Connex box. On July 25th, a mob of Hindu nationalists violently attacked a Christian pastor and his family in northern, uh, in northern India. This morning, I picked up the voice of the martyr. It came in on the mail, and I, and I skimmed through the headlines. And, and, and so here's the headlines. Nepal, young believers are persecuted by their family. Uh, Laos, a faithful witness, loses their livelihood. Burkina Faso, Christians receive training and trauma care because they need it. In America, Christians are beginning to feel the heat of a bit of persecution from our American culture. Jack Phillips and Baronel Stutzman, if you uh, listen to any of the Christian news, you'll recognize those names as they've been singled out and oppressed uh, for their commitments to Jesus, and the list is growing. And I am in no way comparing, comparing our persecution to what I just gave you a minute ago. I'm not saying we're anywhere near that, but it's beginning to rise here. Psalm 73, a psalm we studied a couple of summers ago, if you remember that psalm, the psalmist basically says, I came this close to losing my faith when I looked around and I saw all the wicked prospering and God's righteous people suffering. So today we're going to look at another psalm that touches on the same identical subject, the suffering of the righteous and the prospering of the wicked. So you can be turning in your Bibles to Psalm 94. The unjust, uh, 
the unjust of the psalmist day that we're going to be looking at, they, they are prevailing. They're not just prospering, but they are prevailing. They are openly celebrating their evil. It seems like this has been going on for some time without much change. And, and so with this backdrop, the psalmist in Psalm 94 is going to address four different people or four groups of people. He'll start off by addressing God, and then he'll address the wicked. Then he'll address the righteous. And finally, I believe he's talking to himself. He's addressing himself. And his words are relevant for us today. And what I'm hoping as we study this psalm, maybe that we will be uh, encouraged in our own day. Or if, if, if heaven forbid suffering comes our way, especially at the hands of the wicked, that, that we'll remember this psalm and we'll remember some things that might help us. So I'm going to read the entire psalm. Uh, if you have it, I'm going to read it, then we're going to walk back through it in greater detail, looking at those four, those four divisions that I just gave you. So Psalm 94, follow along in your Bible. I'm reading from the, if you have a phone Bible and you want to get the same translation, I'm going to use the, um, uh, what am I using, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine, rise up, judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? They pour out arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. Lord, they crush your people, they oppress your heritage, they kill the widow and the resident alien and murder the fatherless. They say the Lord doesn't see it, the God of Jacob doesn't pay attention. Pay attention, you stupid people. Fools, when will you be wise? Can the one who shaped the ear not hear? The one who formed the eye not see? The one who instructs nations? The one who teaches mankind knowledge? Does he not discipline? The Lord knows the thoughts of mankind. They are futile. Lord, how happy is anyone you discipline and teach from your law and give him relief from troubled times until the pit is dug for the wicked. The Lord will not leave his people or abandon his heritage, for the administration of justice will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who stands up for me against the wicked? Who takes a stand for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been my helper, I, soon, I would soon rest in the silence of death. If I say my foot is slipping, your faithful love will support me, Lord. When I am filled with cares, your comforts bring me joy can i corrupt can a corrupt throne be your ally a throne that makes evil laws they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death but the lord is my refuge my god is the rock of my protection he will pay them back for their sins and destroy them for their evil the lord our god will destroy them all right, may the Holy Spirit help us here. We're going to divide this into four parts. The first one is this. The psalmist speaks to God about the wicked. As we begin the psalm, the psalmist talks to God, and he addresses God. He petitions God to address the wickedness of evil men. He's basically saying, God, put a stop to it. God, punish them. The first verses strongly imply that the psalmist believes that only God can do this, that only God can correct what is happening in his world. And from a human perspective, let's just talk about this for a moment. The righteous have, have never really been able to successfully arrest or resist the plots of the wicked. 
to have, a, especially when they have the authority of government behind them, or worse yet, when they are the government. And so it is today. In verses one through two, the psalmist pleads with God to judge the wicked because it's God's responsibility to do so. I remind you, verse one, Lord God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine, rise up, judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. The psalmist calls upon God to act upon his responsibility, which is, God, you are the judge of all the earth. Now, that is an expression we find throughout the Bible. We find it beginning in Genesis 18, Psalms 58, Psalm 82, and in numerous other places in your Bible. If there is no God, everyone, there is no judge. And if there is no judge, there is no one to make anything right at the end. For that matter, as we said a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, there is no right or wrong if there is no God and if there is no judge. In addition, the psalmist says, God, you are the God of vengeance. Twice he calls God the God of vengeance, the God of retribution. God, it's your responsibility to enact vengeance on the evil. And and the Bible tells us that over and over again, doesn't it? That it's not my responsibility to enact vengeance. It's God's responsibility. Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It's not mine. It's not yours. And the psalmist is asking God to make it right, to exact retribution against the evil. Twice in these opening verses, he says, how long, God, how long, in verse three, are you going to allow this to go on? And uh, he calls on God because men have not been able, they have not been successful in restraining the evil men and women. And, uh, And that's how it seems to be in all the earth. And it seems like it's been that way almost from the very beginning. Cain, Cain, the brother who is acting wickedly overcoming the brother who is righteous. In verses three through seven, the psalmist describes the evil deeds of the evildoers. Let's see them. The first one is they celebrate their wickedness. Verse three, how long, O Lord, will they celebrate? How long? Twice he asked the question, how long will they celebrate? They're not just doing evil, they're celebrating their evil. I mean, they're just glad to have it out in the open. This isn't exactly the same, but I, I wanna tell you the story. This past week, I don't think I've told the story already, forgive me if I have, but this past week, I think it was, um, Tim Scott had a prayer breakfast, and uh, he invited one of our, one of the representatives, I guess, I don't know if it was from South Carolina, or it was from, from, uh, from our national, you know, uh, from the National Congress, but this, this person gets up at a prayer breakfast and makes a joke about how she's living with her boyfriend and they, and he wanted, he had amorous intentions, but she said, I can't do it because I don't have time. And, and she's making a joke about celebrate. She's celebrating living with someone and committing fornication outside of marriage. I mean, they're not even just covering it up. The wicked are celebrating it. They boast in their wickedness, verse four. They pour out arrogant words, all these evildoers boast. They speak with pride about their evil doing. They crush your people, the psalmist says in verse five. They crush your people, they oppress your heritage. A couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Psalm 53 and the atheists, it said they eat your people. They eat your people. Talking about how they're destroying God's people. It's the same thought here. The wicked are killing the saints. They're murdering the sons and daughters of God, imprisoning God's people. The psalmist is saying, God, how long? How long will you let them do this? 
They destroy the weak, verse 6. They kill the widow and the resident alien and murder the fatherless. By destroy, the psalmist means kill, murder. They, they're killing the widow. They're killing the orphan. They're killing the resident, um, the resident uh, foreigner in the land. Now, whether the psalmist means that they're literally going and, if you would, killing them by an act of their hand, or whether he means they're killing them by their laws and the things that they do to them, like the North Koreans. They may not kill someone that they put in a North Korean work camp, but at the end of the day, they're still killing them by what they do to them. Whether he means, which of those he means, I'm not sure, but the psalmist is basically saying to God, God, they're touching what you say is really special to you. Exodus 22, listen to what God says. You must not wrong a resident foreigner nor oppress him. For you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict them in any way and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry. And in my anger, my anger will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will be widows and your children will be fatherless. So the psalmist is asking God to do what he said he would do, right? That's what he's saying here. How long, God, will they kill the, uh, kill, the, kill the orphan, kill the widows, kill the foreigner among us? How long will, God, you allow the wicked to kill the unborn? How long will you allow the wicked to kill the powerless believers in, in, in Afghanistan and in North Korea and in, uh, in Nigeria and in other places in the world. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to let them just murder these, our brothers and sisters? The wicked mock God in verse 7. They say the Lord doesn't see. The God of Jacob doesn't pay attention. They're impugning the character of God in order to excuse their evil deeds. They have attributed their prolonged success as wicked men and women to God's ignorance or indifference. I take this to mean that they are mocking God. They are saying something like, ha ha, where's God? He must be asleep. Hey, maybe God's out to, out to lunch and that's why he's not doing it. I think they're mocking God. The psalmist sees all this and is distressed. And he speaks to God and he says, God, how long? Do something, God. You're the God of vengeance. You're the God who is the judge of all the earth. Do something, God, about what they're doing. So having spoken to God about the wicked, the psalmist now turns and he speaks to the wicked about God. In verse 8, he's turning attention to them. And he says, pay attention, you stupid people. Fools, when will you be wise? Can the one who shaped the ear not hear? The one who formed the eye not see? The one who instructs the nations? The one who teaches mankind knowledge? Does he not discipline? The Lord knows the thoughts of mankind. They are futile. Now, who are the wicked? Have you thought about this yet? Who are the wicked that the psalmist is referring to in this psalm? Who's he talking about? Who's he, who's he addressing right here in verses 8 through 11? So I think we have two options. They're the pagan unbelievers of the nations of the world, or they are the people, the unbelievers in Israel. And I'm inclined to agree with most every uh, Bible commentator, although I'm sure there was some that would disagree, but I'm inclined to agree with most everyone that the wicked here are the wicked in Israel. They're not the wicked in all the world. They're the wicked in Israel. Psalm 50 uh, identifies wicked among, amongst God's people. Um, 
Many other Old Testament passages describe similar sins like these and ascribes them to the Israelites. Verse 7 speaks of Yahweh as the God uh, of Jacob. Um, The arguments of verses 9 through 11, they're more forceful when you look at them as being directed to Israelites rather than pagans. So most likely the wicked that that the psalmist is dealing with are Israelites. They're wicked Israelites. Which just goes to prove Paul in Romans 9 when he says, not all of Israel is Israel. Not all of national Israel is the true Israel of God who loves God and follows after God. But, but that being said, I think it is very plausible, very possible, very um, God's okay with us taking this and universalizing the wicked and saying that this is about all the wicked in the world who are indeed to this day seeking to destroy the heritage of God, God's, God's people. The psalmist rebukes the wicked by turning their words against them and using logic, which is just faultless. He says, guys, you are senseless, you are foolish, you are even stupid. And uh, he, uh, he says, making fun uh, of the righteous, using sarcasm like you're doing, he says, in my opinion anyway, he says, let, let me tell you something. Um, let me tell you something about God. The God, who, the God who created the ear, he can hear. And the guy who created the eye, he sees. And the God who speaks knowledge to men and women around the world and tells them what is right and what is wrong. I promise you, the psalmist is saying, I am going, he is able to discipline. He is able uh, to judge. Um, some, people, some people suggest that these wicked people, I, I think they're mocking God. Some people suggest that they're not mocking God, that they're, they're reasoning like this. Sure, we're sinning against God, we're, we're doing evil, but God doesn't really care. He hasn't done anything about it. Look, at we're prevailing over you. So God doesn't really care. God isn't concerned about our sin. So why should we worry about it? Now, I gotta be honest with you, I have justified my own sin with that logic at times. And I, I dare say maybe some of you have as well thought, well, you know, God's not going to do anything about it. God's not going to discipline me because he hasn't in the past or he didn't discipline so-and-so. And, and we, we tend to maybe think this way, um, but the psalmist is saying whatever your, whatever your motivation is, whether it's you're mocking God or whether you think, hey, I'm just getting away with it. God doesn't really care about this. If Whatever your motivation is, here's what the psalmist is saying. God is able to hear. God is able to see. I mean, these are rhetorical questions. Can the creator of the ear not hear? Can he not see? The answer is rhetorical. Yes, he hears. Yes, he sees. Yes, he holds us accountable. The psalmist says it plainly in verse 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of mankind. They are futile. Now, folks, listen. We are not the wicked of Psalm uh, 94. But I think there's something we need to remember here that's applicable to all of you sitting here listening to me and to myself first and foremost is that we do well to remember that nothing is hidden from God. Nothing is hidden from God. You may hide it from everyone in this room and you may hide it really well, but it is not hidden from the Lord. God hears, God sees, 
and God holds us accountable. Why would the psalmist trouble himself to talk to them? You ever thought about that? Why, why, is he do, why is he talking to the wicked? Well, it could be that it just feels good to, to pour out a little bit of righteous indignation on wicked people, doesn't it? I mean, let me give you an illustration. You're watching a movie, and there's a really bad guy, and somebody gives it to him. And man, aren't you really happy about that in the movie? I mean, I know I am. So it could be that the psalmist is just wanting to pour out a little indignation on these folks. But it could also be, hey, he could be a little bit more gracious. It could be that the psalmist is appealing to them. He's trying to say to them, you think you're getting away with this, but you're not getting away with it. God hears, God sees, God's holding you accountable. Maybe he's challenging them to repent in a way through what he's doing in verses eight through 11. So the psalmist, the wicked are prevailing, they're prospering, they're, they're, they're not just prospering, they're prevailing. Maybe they're even in government as we'll see when we get to verses 20 and 21. So he had a word for the wicked, but there's a word needed for the righteous also. And that's what he does next in verses 12 through verse 15. What about the mistreated men and women who love God, who are following God, who are righteous, who are seeking to live by faith and obedient to God? What about them? So the psalmist speaks to them in verses 12 through verse 15. He speaks to the righteous about God. Verse 12, Lord, how happy is anyone you discipline and teach from your law? to give him relief from troubled times until a pit is dug for the wicked. The Lord will not leave his people or abandon his heritage, for the administration of justice will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Now he uses the same terms, discipline and teach, from, from verse 10. But in verse 10, he used them in a different way. In verse 10, he was talking about people who ignored them, that God would judge them. But here in verse 12, he's saying, if you listen to that, then, then you who obey that, you who will listen to that, he, he says, happy is that person who does that. Why? He says, because God's word will give you relief from the trouble of the wicked while you wait for their death. And that's what it means to wait for the pit, the grave of the wicked. You see that in verse uh, in verse 13, to give him relief from troubled times until a pit is dug for the wicked. It's talking about the death of the wicked. Now, now the question that we need to ask ourselves from the psalm, from this psalm is how does God's word give us relief from the torment of the evil and wicked people? And I hate to say this, but it's the truth. It doesn't always, I might even add, it doesn't necessarily often give us physical relief from the oppression of those who are killing us. Evil men may still prevail over us. They still may oppress us. They still may kill us. Um, as per what's happening in Afghanistan, as per what's happening in North Korea, in China, in Nigeria, and Ethiopia, or however you say the name of that country, and, and I'm sure the list goes on and on. So how does the word of God give us relief if, if believers continue to be tormented and tortured and killed for their faith? How does it give us relief? Well, I think it gives us, the word of God gives us relief because it gives us hope. It gives us promise. It gives us the grace to endure because here's what the psalmist says, in the end, righteousness will prevail. Verse 14, 
The Lord will not leave his people or abandon his heritage. For the administration of justice will again be righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Here's what the psalmist says. The word of God gives you help in your time of suffering at the hands of the wicked because it gives you hope that God is not going to abandon you, that God's not going to leave you, that God is going to be right there with you in the midst of that suffering. Charles Spurgeon once encouraged like this. He said, and I quote, even if Satan should come and whisper to you, the Lord has cast thee off. Do not believe it. It cannot be. The devil has his cast-offs, but God has no cast-offs. Sometimes he takes the devil's castaways and makes them to be trophies of God's mighty grace. If the atheist were right, there would be no judge at the end of the day. There would be no judge to make things right. There would be no judge that we could put our hope in. But the atheist is wrong. He's wrong. There is a God And he is going to make all things right one day and we should put our hope in him. That's what the psalmist says. And when you put your hope in him, you get rest for your soul in the midst of suffering at the hands of the wicked. Now by faith I tell you that because I've never suffered at the hands of the wicked. Not like we're talking about here. Not like we're talking about in in the world. But if you listen to other men who have... um, Richard Wormbrand, for instance, who suffered under communist, uh, under the communist, and I mean, he suffered so greatly. And he talks about how God gave him hope in the midst of the hardest suffering at the hands of the wicked. God gave him hope. And I think that's what the psalmist is saying. There is hope because in the end, the administration of justice will again be righteous. God will not abandon his people or his heritage. And all the upright in heart will follow it. God will, God will restore all righteousness. So but the question is, and, and I mean, I, I just, I'd, feel, I'd feel like I'm being disingenuous not to address this. Why doesn't God protect us now? Why doesn't God insulate us now from suffering? After all, one day he's going to do that, right? I mean, don't you have that hope that one day there'll be no more suffering? Doesn't the Bible tell us that? That there'll be one day with no more suffering? If God can make it so that in one day there'll never be any suffering, why not now? Why, why not make it now? Now, the psalmist doesn't answer that question, and I don't have an answer to that question either. I, I do not believe that God created suffering. I believe that suffering is a result of our own sin and rebellion against God. Now, I know others disagree with me, and they would say God created suffering, and, um, you know, I, I just don't think that's true. I think suffering is the result of us walking in brokenness and separation from God's desires and will. Because of that, the result is brokenness and suffering. That's why I think suffering is in the world. That being said... Why God doesn't change that? Why God doesn't insulate us from that? Why God doesn't cocoon Christians and make there be no more suffering for us? I I don't have an ultimate answer to that, but I will tell you this, and Ronnie intimated at it this morning when he was sharing, God uses our suffering. God uses our suffering. And in fact, I'll I'll tell you this, I, I say this to when people want to say, hey, there's no God, because if there was a good God, he'd never let us suffering. 
he has never let us suffer. Here's what I say. All I know is this good God, he entered into our suffering and he suffers alongside of us. So for whatever reason God doesn't insulate us, whatever reason God doesn't remove our suffering now, all I can tell you is this good God and this great God, this creator of all things, chose to enter into our suffer and to suffering and to suffer like us. And so, beloved, that ought, that ought to encourage us at some level. But, but let me tell you, let me give you some reasons as, as we close the psalm out. Let me give you some reasons why, I, how God uses suffering in our life. Not going to answer the question necessarily why he, why he doesn't insulate us when he's going to do that one day. But for right now in this, in this age, he's allowing suffering and this is what he does with it. He uses suffering to humble us. Suffering humbles us. Suffering reminds us of our humanity. It reminds us that we're but dust. It reminds us that our life is but a vapor. And it reminds us of this. You are not in control. You are, listen, if my brother was in control, my sister-in-law would not have an aggressive form of bladder cancer. But he's not in control. He has no control over that whatsoever. And you don't have control in your life. You might think you have control, and you have control over little things that God may give you control over, but you don't have control over the big things that would absolutely devastate. You don't have control over those things. So suffering reminds us, it humbles us, reminds us of who we are. John Bloom writes this, and I quote, God gives us grace in opposing our pride, for the humble will dwell with God. Humility is our greatest friend, and often humility comes through no other avenue other than suffering in our lives. In Psalm 119, David says, uh, what so many of us have already experienced. It was good, this David, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Here's what I think David means. It was good for me to suffer because it made me willing to listen. That's what I think he means. Suffering drives us to depend on God. Not only does it humble us and, and it makes us recognize who we are and that we're not in control, but it drives us to depend on Jesus and it drives us to depend on God. When I realize that I can't control anything and my life's but a mist and I'm only here for a moment and I vanish, James 4, 14, we cling to Jesus who alone is our rock and sure foundation. Suffering drives us to lean on God like nothing else can. Nothing else can, can drive us to depend on God like suffering. When we can't remove it, we know that there's a God in heaven who could. I mean, it just makes us depend on him. Suffering reminds us to live in light of eternity. Suffering and pain causes us to long for Jesus in his kingdom. Suffering shocks us into remembering that we're but temporary residents and aliens in this world. That this life is not the permanent one. That eternal life is coming. This is not eternal life. This is life that's going to die. And, and so it just reminds us to live in light of eternity. We're looking and longing for the kingdom to come whereby which God will grant to us eternal life. When this happens to us, when so, we redirect our life to what's, what's, uh, what's eternal. I guarantee you, I guarantee if you talk to my brother and my sister, Alan and Evie, you, you will see that already there is a reorienting as to what is most important in my life. The good news in our suffering is this, according to Dave Willis, and I quote, 
Because of Jesus, all our pain is temporary and all our joy is eternal. I want that to sink in. Did you hear what he said? Because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, all our pain is temporary and all our joy is eternal. And when suffering comes, man, you remember that. Paul wrote it like this. He said, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then we could tack this on from another letter. That was Romans. This is Corinthians. He says that, that it's an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, our suffering. Suffering completes the suffering of Jesus. Here's what Paul says in Colossians. He says, chapter one, end of the verse, end of the chapter. He says, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. He's writing to the Colossians. He's never even met him. I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, Christ's sufferings, for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now here's what I think Paul means there. Jesus suffered and died to make us right with God. I mean, and, and, and can I tell you something? Please grab a hold of this. Paul is not saying you add anything to that. You don't add anything to Jesus' suffering and death for us. It was perfect and it was complete and Jesus did it. So when he says, I'm, 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 I'm filling up what's missing, he's not talking about Jesus suffering and dying for us. I think what Paul is saying that is, as I live for Jesus and I suffer as I live for his kingdom, I live as him being my Lord, as a disciple in his life, and I suffer for that, I am completing what Jesus suffered for. I'm completing the church. I'm completing God's kingdom. I'm helping build God's kingdom by suffering as, as a follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm building God's church. I'm completing what Jesus suffered for. He's building the ecclesia. If you look at the text, he says, uh, I'm in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings for the sake of his body, which is the church. He, he's building up the church. So listen, at least at some level, our brothers and sisters that are suffering, say, say the ones that are suffering in, in North Korea or in Afghanistan or whatever because they follow Jesus and, and they're paying the ultimate suffering. They're giving up their lives or they're being tortured and tormented. You know, as they live for Jesus and, and don't surrender their faith, people are seeing them suffer and those people are saying, I, I want I want to know that God. I want, I want to follow that God. And, and, and so they are, they are building up. They are, they are completing Jesus' sufferings for his church. But his sufferings were perfect and complete. Suffering is used to train us in righteousness. No suffering is fun. And I'm anxiously waiting the day of my redemption when I will suffer no more. I, I don't want suffering. I don't like suffering. I don't think any of us really want suffering. I did appreciate Ronnie's thoughts that when he said, you know, could we pray, God, I'll suffer, I'll suffer if it means the advancement of your kingdom. And I'd like to think I could pray that prayer. And I'd like to think I would pray that prayer. But I'm going to just be honest with you. I don't like suffering. I don't want to suffer. I look forward to the day when God removes all suffering and all death. And all of that is in the past. And it'll be of this age and the new age to come with Jesus reigning over us as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
over his kingdom on earth. I, I tell you, I long for that day. But nonetheless, suffering today helps train us in righteousness. Endurance and patience are vital aspects of growing in maturity in our faith. Look at these three verses. Ronnie read some of these. I don't know exactly which ones, but, but listen, this is, this is James, Paul, and Peter. Here's James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials, suffering of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So James says trials bring about perseverance, which causes maturity in your life. Here's Paul. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Paul says, hey, I rejoice in your sufferings because they bring about endurance, which in the end brings about the growth of your character and makes you like Jesus. And then there's Peter. He's a little bit different. He doesn't say suffering brings about perseverance. But notice this. He says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and godliness mutual affection and mutual affection love. Because when we possess these things, we're becoming more and more like him. It won't be ineffective or unproductive. Now, I take Peter's word saying that perseverance is, is what gets us there. And James and Paul already told us that what gets us to perseverance and endurance is suffering. So maybe one of the reasons that God doesn't insulate you and me from suffering is because he knows that it'll bring about one or maybe all of these things in our life. Maybe that's why he hasn't chosen to, to remove all suffering from us. But I remind you of this. He will one day remove all of your sufferings. And the glory of that day cannot be and will not be compared to whatever you suffer now. This will be a distant memory. It will not affect you. What will affect you will be the joys of this age and the age and the age to come. And then finally, the psalmist speaks, the psalmist speaks to himself about God. Initially, I thought in these last verses, the psalmist was basically speaking to everyone saying, join me in resisting the evildoers. But as I, as I read, I read more and as I kept reading it, it just really became clear to me, he's not asking us to join him against the evildoers. He's basically saying, no one but God is able to stand up to the evildoers for me. The psalmist encourages himself with this truth that God is for him. Verse 16, who stands up for me against the wicked? Who takes a stand for me against the evildoers? And his rhetorical answer to his questions are this, or is this, the answer is God. God is the one who stands up for me against the wicked. God is the one who takes a stand for me against the evildoers. And then notice as he, as, he, as he writes it down, this is what he's done for me. First, God has rescued me from death. Verse 17, if God had not been my helper, I would soon rest in the silence of death. If God had not rescued me, I would have died, the psalmist says. I can't help but remember the Amy Grant song. Y'all remember the Amy Grant song, those old saints that are here? Isn't that something? Talking about Amy Grant, you have to be an old saint to remember this. But anyway, uh, Amy Grant sang a song about how you know, the angels protected her when a car was going to come and kill her. And uh, she didn't even know it, but the angels protected her, right? I remember I used to like that line. How many times might God have protected us 
from the work of the evildoer who wanted to take our life. Um, God has kept him, kept him, kept me, he says, from falling, verse 18. If I say my foot is slipping, your faithful love will support me, Lord. He says, God, you're the one that keeps me from slipping. You're the one that keeps me from falling away. God, your faithful love has kept me from slipping. Remember Psalm 73 where the psalmist said, I almost slipped when I saw the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. This is Michael Lane's testimony from a few weeks ago. He was slipping and God, God's love and God himself arrested his fall. All, I was thinking about this. As we all know, many who professed to follow Jesus, they fall away. They fall away. And I'm not gonna get into why they fall away or didn't fall away. But here's my point. I wonder how many times you and I were falling away You and I were falling away and God did something to arrest your fall. That God did something to intervene to keep you from falling away. I wonder how many, that's what the psalmist says. Man, when I was slipping, God, you stopped my fall. He said, God, you've comforted me when my cares were overwhelming, verse 19. When I am filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. The psalmist says, when I'm overwhelmed, God, you're there for me and you fill my heart with joy when the cares are just too much for me. And I, I gotta tell you, many of us have experienced this same thing. We're drowning in our cares. We're drowning in our sorrow. And God comes along and he lifts our head and he lifts our countenance. I gotta be honest with you, Joshua. You did that for me this morning watching you worship. I mean, you lifted my countenance. And that's what God does. I mean, he comes along and he, he helps us when our cares are overwhelming us. God, God is his refuge. He says, when evil men band together against him, God, you are my refuge. Verse 20, can a corrupt throne be your ally, a throne that makes evil laws? Can you depend on them? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But Lord, you are my refuge. My God is the rock of my protection. Evil men may band against us and they may even be the government. They may even be have the force of government behind them like, like some of these countries I've mentioned. But God is our protector. God is our refuge. And again, I want to say that doesn't mean they won't kill us. That doesn't mean they don't hate us. That doesn't mean that they won't make us suffer. But God has us and God will keep us and God will restore our lives. Don't, don't fear the evil man who will kill the body. Fear God who will kill both body and soul, destroy both body and soul in hell. God is your refuge. God is your protector, your keeper, your strong tower, your rock. That's what the psalmist says. He's, he's got you, everybody. I don't care what they do to you. He's got you. And he's going to keep you. He's never going to let you go. The psalmist reminds himself what he, what he, the last thing he reminds himself of is what he started this psalm saying. He says, God will indeed bring justice. God, he's telling himself, God, you will indeed bring vengeance on the wicked. Verse 23. God will repay them back for their sins and destroy them for their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. God will indeed destroy the wicked. God will indeed be just. The wicked think 
They are beyond retribution, but they are not. The God of the universe is righteous and he will bring justice. And he has appointed a time for all men to die and then he will bring justice. He'll bring judgment. So there are evil people in the world, men and women who've hardened their hearts against God. They've seared their consciences. God has given them over to their evil desires and their selfishness and they injure and they seek to destroy God's people and others. But the truth is, we all need God's forgiveness. You, you need God's forgiveness. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how you are not an evil person this morning. You fall short of the life that God desired for you. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so you know what? You need God's forgiveness. I don't care who you are. I don't care how good you are. I don't care that you are not the evil, that the psalm, evil ones that the psalmist is talking about. You, you need God's forgiveness. Jesus came to rescue a repentant evil man. Did you know that any of the men the psalmist is talking about, any of the women who, uh, who have persecuted God's heritage and put them to death, if they repent, God is more than willing and wanting them, to, wanting to restore them. Can you think of who the most famous of them was? It was the Apostle Paul. It was the Apostle Paul a persecutor of God's heritage, a killer, a murderer of God's heritage. And yet in repentance, God used him to write most of the New Testament and become one of the major influencers of the new church, of the, of the growing new covenant church. So God can rescue any wicked man. And he came for them. But you know what? He came for you. Jesus came for you. And maybe you're not a witness. Maybe you're not somebody who's hardened your heart and you're not, you're not persecuting God's people, etc. And you're not wicked like that. But, but you know what? You're in need of forgiveness and Jesus came to save you too. So don't think this is just about, don't think Jesus is just about always saving them. It's about, he came to save you. And, uh, and when God created you from the very beginning, he knew that he loved you and he knew that you'd need him. Jesus came not only to redeem and save the atheist and the evil man, but he came to save you. He came to forgive you your sins. He came to give you eternal life. When, uh, when you could not be righteous in yourself to merit God's life, Jesus became your righteousness, and he's willing to give it to you. He's willing to give it to you, but he gives it to you by faith. You may not be an evil person, but you may not seek to destroy God's people, but you are nonetheless in need of God's forgiveness and God's grace. And so today, I'm asking, are you willing to repent of your sin and put your trust and confidence in Jesus? Are you willing to turn to Jesus? I mean, I've been talking about the evil men and women around the world who, they hate God and they hate God's people and they injure us and they cause us suffering. But now I'm turning, I'm turning the ship and I'm pointing it at you. And I'm saying you need that same forgiveness. Is there anyone here today that knows you need that forgiveness and are willing to put your confidence and your trust in Jesus? Listen, this isn't about church. This isn't about being moral. This is about recognizing that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus for you. 
and for me. And if Jesus isn't, if Jesus isn't your king, if Jesus isn't your savior, if you by faith haven't asked him to give you the righteousness, his righteousness, then you need to do that this morning, right now, where you are. So I'm inviting you. So let's bow our heads. I think being a Christian is a public thing. I mean, that's what Eden did this morning. She came and she publicly said, I'm a follower of Jesus. But you know what? Following Jesus begins in a moment in your heart. It begins in a moment in the, in the core of your being to say, I believe and I want to follow. So this morning, where you are, where you're sitting, if, if it's your heart's desire to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, to put your trust and confidence in Jesus, to ask him to forgive you of your sins and accept you into his kingdom, then do it right now. I mean, it's not about your words, it's about your heart. If your heart's crying that out, he's hearing it. Maybe you might want to add words to it, like, hey, Lord, I need you. Would you forgive me of my sin? I I come to you in faith. I believe in you. I trust in you. I want to follow you. I mean, you just articulate that any way you can, any way you want to God. But Jesus, Jesus has died to save you as much as he died to save the wicked and evil man or evil woman. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.